But hey, as we go into uh, today, we've been working through uh, what, what, uh, what in uh, Bible study, uh, biblical studies is called the upper room discourse. And what all that means is, uh, this is the time between when Jesus gets his disciples in the upper room, they break bread, he has his last communion. Uh, between that moment, uh, there's a foot washing that takes place. Remember, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Between that and uh, them going to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will ultimately be arrested and put into uh, trial and crucified. Between that, Jesus is sharing some of his final thoughts. Uh, and let me say it this way. Jesus is imparting uh, a, a final reminder of his ways and what it looks like to follow him. There's reminders in there. There's commands in there. Uh, this section of Scripture, and I wouldn't recommend that you take any section of Scripture lightly, specifically with this one, uh, pay attention. When Jesus commands us to do something, uh, this isn't him just kind of like throwing out last-minute suggestions and see what sticks. It's really him uh, imparting to his disciples these final things uh, we've talked about a lot of things. A couple of weeks ago, Pat walked us through uh, this idea that, uh, that, that, not this idea, Jesus teaching that he is the vine and we're the branches and that apart from him we can do nothing, but so long as we're uh, abide in him and he in us that we can bear much fruit. And we've even walked through and talked about that is disciple-making fruit, that through our lives God would uh, produce things that plant and grow and that those things produce and plant and grow. And then coming right off of that last week, we walked through Jesus' command to love each other in the way that he's loved us. And this week, we take a bit of a turn, uh, and Jesus gives kind of the other side to the coin, and I want to start uh, by asking us to think about this. Have you ever seen this box? Does anybody know what this is? All right. This is uh, what the youths call on the TikTok, the one chip challenge. All right. Now, full disclosure, I got this from Mike Locke's office, and that is not a lie, all right? Um, the idea is, in this box that is not ironically shaped like a coffin, uh, is a chip that has, I forget what the Schofield rating on this is, uh, it'll burn your face off, I think is uh, the ultimate description on the back. It is extremely hot, and there is actually a rubber glove that you have to put on to handle the chip, all right? Now, mind you... Um, we have one of our boys, Jonathan, uh, thinks ketchup is on the verge of too spicy, all right? Uh, I'm good with Cholula, but that's about my limit. This is well off the mark. Uh, and from what I understand, Mike gets a sick amount of joy uh, from these kinds of things. And so, um, but, but the idea is this, is that this is, uh, it, it, the challenge is to eat one chip. It's just one chip, right? Now, I want you to track with me. I promise that this goes to the Bible somewhere, all right? What if I knew how hot this chip was, right? And it was lunchtime, and you said, hey, nice sandwich. Do you have any chips? <laughs> I sure do. I sure do have chips, right? And I handed this to you, right? Now, track with me. What would you prefer? Uh, what would be the better choice? Let you eat it and say nothing, or explain how hot the chip is and give it to you. Your preference? For those of you that want option two, there will be prayer after service, and we would like to invite you to come up and, and enjoy that. Um, 
Yeah, obviously we, we want to know what we're getting into, right? I am a measured person. I'm calculated. I like to know the 17 ways it could go wrong. I want to know if I were to eat this chip, I would want to know every ER uh, in the near vicinity and how fast a helicopter could get to my location and how they could solve all my problems. Uh, uh, my sister-in-law is an ER nurse. My sister's a nurse and downstate, and they've said they have people that show up, they've eaten this, and they're expecting them to solve the problem as though they were the problem, right? They can't get it to calm down, and they don't know. And it's like, well, the box says the entire back is a warning label that says you shouldn't eat this chip. And then they sell it to you, so you eat the chip, right? So you get the image. What I want to bring us into is this, right? Jesus has been walking with his disciples, and they have seen unbelievable things. They have seen Jesus show up in ways that they've never seen before. In fact, to the point where all they can do is point back to their scriptures, to what the prophets had said and the kings before them, what God has revealed through people in the past about this anointed one, this Messiah that's to come, and all they can do is say, the only thing we can do with this guy is say, he's this person. He's got to be the one. And in that, Jesus is healing people. Think about this, right? Uh, if you were to show up to Christ Advocate Hospital and do the stuff that he was doing in Scripture, uh, it wouldn't take long for people to catch on that there's something different about this guy. The blind can see. Remember what he tells John the Baptist when he's in prison and he sends somebody. He says, you go talk to the people who used to be blind that can see, the ones who couldn't walk that are out running around. You tell me what you think. And they've seen this. They've watched it happen. They've seen the unbelievable things. Jesus knows also the trouble the disciples are going to experience. They've seen the good. They know the good. They're commissioned to go do good. But in the middle of that, it's not just going to be good. Does that make sense? Ultimately, the story ends good. But between that, it's not great. And so in there, Jesus starts painting a better, healthier picture. One option is he could say nothing and let them find out on their own, but there's this section in Scripture right before Jesus is arrested and beaten and crucified. Mind you, all in a, a, a legal system that was pretty tainted and, and run through the ringer. In that process, before that all happens, Jesus lets the disciples know right? How hot the chip's going to be. He lets them know what's about to hit them. He doesn't tell them not to follow. He doesn't turn them away. He just says, no, it's so winsome. It's so good, right? What, what is on this side? But just so you know, the Jesus following way doesn't go through uh, straight up green pastures. It ends there, but it goes through some stuff. He knows what that when we obey his commands, it puts us at odds with the world we live in. Keep in mind, Jesus has taught and trained his disciples in all the incredible things they will see and do. He's mentored them in the way of love and grace, but he has another part of the lesson before he leaves earth. We need reminded of the difficult parts. We tend to live in a culture that expects uh, that everything will go our way, and then we get surprised when things don't. As though we don't know that we live in a fallen world that's removed itself from God and chosen in many ways to walk away from Him. 
Jesus is telling the disciples to expect lasting fruit from faithful obedience to Jesus and loving the world around you, but don't be surprised when you encounter hate from the world that you're called to love. Let's understand what we're talking about when we talk about the world. Because uh, we can get into this place, listen, as Christians, we live in a unique time in history We have our own radio stations, publishing houses, uh, colleges. Uh, We have our own bookstores. We have our own. We we can live in a bubble where it's just us. It's pretty easy. And so what can be easy is for us to create this us versus them mentality of they are the evil, dark world that's trying to destroy everything that's good, and we're just the good people that are over here trying to work our way through it. And to some extent that's true, but what I want us to see is there's, there's... There's a nuance to this idea of the world uh, that before we jump into it, uh, we need to grab onto because John has already said in chapter 3, verse 16, for God so... The what? Okay. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's a lot of love. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, but they would have eternal life. But then in John's first letter, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love... Anybody confused yet? All right. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. At the same time, we're called to love the world, right? Jesus says, love your neighbors, love your family, love your Christian community, love your enemies, love foreigners, love everybody. Nobody gets out of that one. So we've got this situation, and I want us to unpack it, we are to love God and in turn love the people in the world around us, all of them with no exception, but the world also represents not just individuals that we're called to love, but a kingdom that is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. So the world doesn't always, uh, sometimes we're talking about individual people, sometimes we're talking about this alternative kingdom to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world under the prince of darkness has systems and schemes and structures that serve to destroy God's good and distract God's people. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, nor is it from this world, but his ministry is in this world, and it is to this world. You get the complex nature of it. It's not just they're there and we're over here. It's that, yeah, we're over here, but we are called to go over there. Because don't forget, when God called you, it was from out of there. That's why Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't become like it, right? But you're still called to be in it. So we love the people in the world while continually guarding ourselves and being watchful and mindful of the systems and the schemes and the structures of the world. In John's gospel, what we find, uh, we see that there's this picture painted. We see God has love for the world, but that world is lost in darkness. Have you noticed that? The world is viewed in John's gospel as transformable, but the world is resistant to being transformed because of its rebellion and sin. And listen, some of you are like me. We've been in church long enough that we've forgotten our own life's connection to the world. We forget how deep in it we were, right? 
So when we do this us versus them, we forget that them is family still. There's friends. We've got neighbors. We've got co-workers. We, we have people we love that are in that world that we want to say us versus them. Ephesians chapter 5, 8, Paul reminds us that you are currently in Christ, and he says you were once darkness. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. That is who we were, which means the light isn't there. But he says, but in Christ, we are now light, here's the qualifier, in the Lord. In the Lord. So long as we're in the Lord, we're light. But don't forget where we're from. Jesus came into the world that he loves, and the same world that he came into and is in rebellion to him. In Christ, we've been saved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. We are no longer led by the prince of darkness or the father of all lies, but the prince of peace who is the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That king Jesus with all authority in heaven on earth, commissioned us back into the world to every tribe, language, and nation to bear disciple-making fruit. Do you get the image? He's called us out, but then he sent us back in. We can't live in the world, hear me, we can't live in the world complaining about the world. Now, I know you don't do that, but there's other churches out there, all right? We're good people at Moraine. There's no chance that would happen to us. But follow me. You can't live in the world complaining about the world, assuming that we're better than the world. If anything, we, like Jesus, should be the ones weeping over the world because we remember what that darkness felt like when we were like them, like sheep without a shepherd. And empathy does your heart break for violence, corruption, misuse of power, impurity, and destruction of sin in the world around us, or do you sit back and cross your arms and create an us-versus-them mentality? Look at them. Look at how they live. Look at what they're doing. Remember, Jesus said light doesn't do anything if you put it under a bowl and lay it on the ground. You put it in the highest place so it gives light to all the darkness that's around it. And sometimes we can find ourselves in our bowls with our arms crossed complaining rather than being the ones that are sent to shine? Has the joy of your salvation turned into a pride in your position? It's so easy to be comfortable co-heirs with Christ and forget the kinds of people we were when he found us and redeemed us. If we jump into this section of Scripture without understanding the context of our own testimony, we can assume that when we read the world, that it's us versus them. Instead, it's us, lost in the world. Do you remember that point of your life? But redeemed from the world. Do you remember that story? By a God who loved the world, thankfully, and with all authority sent us back into the world. And what we're about to read is a reminder that world hates Jesus. But it doesn't negate our love for the people that make up that world. Because it certainly didn't detract Jesus from showing up to it. If you are new to Jesus, we are convinced that Jesus is worthy of giving him your whole life, and it's worth any difficulty you face because you're following Jesus. Convinced. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you've been around him, I want 
you to consider the life many have lived for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, losing all things so that they could gain Christ. When we jump into this, I want to throw a warning label out there because we can be quick to do this because some of us don't have a global perspective of what Christian suffering looks like. When we read this, we can read troubles and hard times and the world hating us. We can read that as difficulties in the human life, not difficulties because our lives are found so deep in Christ. Paul wasn't in jail because the world's a bad place. Paul was in jail because he couldn't stop preaching about Jesus. Is that why your troubles are coming? Is the difficulty in our lives because we can't stop talking about Jesus, that he is so in control of who we are, that we are willing, we are willing to run uh, into jails, into wherever that leads us, just out of pure obedience. Because when Jesus prepares his disciples for the trouble and hatred that's to come from the world, it's not just that they had a bad day at work and they need to work through how they suffer well. You get it? He's preparing them for living out the life of Christ in such a way that the, it, it spurs hatred from the world because our lives are in so opposition. Not just that we believe things that are separate from the world, but that we're living out a lifestyle that is so distinct and unique from what the rest of the world experiences. Those are two different things. Yeah? Now don't clap. I haven't figured this out yet. I'm just telling you what the Bible's saying. All right? But I want us to know, because we can get comfortable and used to such a pretty, historically cushiony Christian life, that we forget about what's going on to the church in Saudi Arabia and Colombia. We forget what's going on in the north coast of Africa and places all around the world where people are literally putting their life on the line because they've decided to follow Jesus, and there's no turning back. I want us to look at Jesus' preparation for the troubles ahead, and the first one is this, is a reminder uh, that we are in Christ and out of this world. Not, and that's not like an encouragement, like, oh, you're just out of this world, you know? But we used to be there, and now we're out of it, right? That we are not in the world anymore. We are, in fact, out of that world. In Revelation, there's this call to the church to come out of Babylon, which means, in Revelation, God finds his church in Babylon. And we need to bring ourselves out of the world because God has called us out of the world. John chapter 15, 8 says this, right? We're just picking up where we left off last week. If the world hates you, right? Here's what I love. We just came off of love your neighbor, like love your, uh, each other as I've loved you. This is a command, and we're like, yeah, we should, that's great. And he's like, if the world hates you, and you're like, Hold on, that's a rough turn, right? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Anybody comforted? We should be, but on the onset, I'm not. It's like, hold on, what about like, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest? Like, where'd that Jesus go? He's here, making sure that in the middle of the storm, we can still find rest. Don't forget, right? Jesus did not die of old age. What I mean is, the world hated him. 
He was wrongfully accused. They had to coerce schemes in the background and in the darkness. They had to come find him at night so nobody knew what they were doing. Uh, They put on a a, a non-legal trial to arrest him. And they got all this stuff done before the, the sun rose the next morning. Why? Because what's done in darkness... Get it? There's a hatred there. What Jesus reminded us, and this is all about to happen this night, mind you, as he's telling this to the disciples. What he's walking us through and what he's leading us towards is this reminder, and he's about to show them, and these are words they can hang on. One of the things that caught me as I was reading this uh, this last week is this fact, is this is in the Gospel of John, written roughly 60 years after uh, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. 60 years down the road, the, the, the temple's been destroyed, everything's gone, the church is scattered out of persecution, people are literally hiding in caves for churches, you get it? So John's writing this letter, remembering these words from Jesus that he would have heard firsthand in this room. And I just had this moment like, man, I, I, wonder, I wonder how that hit for those guys to remember that Jesus let them know that this was coming. If the world is in continual rebellion against God, it's no surprise that when Jesus comes to the world, it will be at odds with him. This word hate in its Greek means enmity, or being actively opposed to or hostile to someone or something. It's a state of being that leads to actions. There are things God hates, right? Hate's not all bad. It's often what we do with it, much like anger. We're uh, told in in, in the New Testament that we, uh, out of your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say anger is the sin. It says out of your anger, out of this state of being, don't let the actions be what causes you to sin. Out of this hatred are going to come actions. We are ambassadors of Christ. What that means is not only do we represent Jesus as we love the world around us, it's reciprocated. We represent Jesus to the world as it hates him and rebels against him. And he's letting us know it's coming. The Jesus-following life does not miss God's goodness, but it also doesn't miss the world's brokenness. If you were, verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, right? If you were like that, be like, hey, you feel at home here. Part of the uh, coming out of the world thing, I don't know if this was difficult for you as it was for me, was realizing I felt comfortable there. I felt like I belonged there. It was harder to live over here than it was over there because uh, I'm living over here, but I have to live amongst everyone over here. Because if you're over there, everything's fine. He says, but I chose you. Remember that Choosing was to produce lasting fruit. He had chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We were chosen, picked out, which is great, but it's the same world that now hates us. It's because we're no longer with the world, but instead we are with Jesus that causes the world to hate us. Verse 20 says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they, keep my, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here's the humility check. A lot of us sign up to follow Jesus, and we've made our way through many Good Friday services expecting that we'll never have to go through anything like it. And actually get surprised when some of that stuff comes our way. But when we, chose, when we follow Jesus, we follow all of him. The entire process 
Uh, not just the, uh, you know, the, the beckon the little children to come unto me. That's part of it. Not just the uh, experiencing God doing unbelievable things in the world. That's part of it. But also the pick up your cross and follow me part of it. And he says we're not going to be greater than him. So we shouldn't expect, we should expect at least what he went through. Right? If Jesus had to go through this, we, we should probably expect that that's going to be a little bit of what we have to go through. As you look at the life ahead of you, prepare for troubles. Your life is different now in Christ. You were picked out of this world and you are now in Christ. So expect this life to come with hatred and enmity with what's going on around you. Some of us like to see how well we can straddle that fence. I like to keep a social life in this world because I'm comfortable. I remember how to have fun there. Over here, I don't remember how to have, you know, so there's kind of this like, I like this. Remember that. We're kind of here. And we're reminded that there is a full outness of that world that God has called us to. But what he's called us into is so much greater than what he's called us out of. The second reminder I want to give us preparation for the trouble ahead, that because the world doesn't know Jesus, they don't know themselves. And if I were to go back and look at my life before Christ, I would say I had no idea who I was. In fact, most of the trouble I got into was trying to pretend I was somebody or find out who I was. Can you relate? And because we don't know the Lord, we don't know ourselves, I love this image James gives us where when we look into the Word, it's like looking into a mirror. We get to see fully who we are, right? I might think that I look like, you know, like a, a good, you know, we'll go with George Clooney, right? And I can live life that way, but if I get close to a mirror, I'm going to be sorely mistaken. You know what I'm saying? Because I actually get to see the reality of what's going on. Many of us don't like mirrors. <laughs> and in this, what I want us to see is Christ is that. We, we see who we really are through him. And so when Jesus shows up and everyone rejects him, they keep going on with this alternate mindset of who they think they are or who they think they want to be. They don't know themselves purely because they don't know him. It's crazy how full of ourselves we can be until we see the begin to see the power, understanding, and the presence of God. When we see the bigness of God, it's hard not to start feeling small. Then we start to understand our honest, limited power and finite understanding. The world doesn't know Jesus, so they don't really understand themselves and live disillusion. John 15, 21 says, But all these things they will know, they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. To know him, to realize, to perceive, to understand uh, what he's not talking about. This is not an intellectual discovery of facts. Uh, he read an encyclopedia, learned something new about God. It's like, well, here we are, right? This is a, um, uh, more so, what we're dealing with is a spiritual awareness of the Father. To perceive who God is and how he is and how that shows up to us and who he is when he puts on flesh and as Eugene Peterson says, moves into our neighborhood. When we see God that way, we start to see not just who the Father is, we start to start see a little bit of who we really are. To love God with our whole being, right? Or scripture tells us our heart, our soul, our mind, 
and our strength. To know God is to obey Him. But on the flip side, to not know God means there is opposition to God and impending disobedience. He says in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Right? Meaning, they would have, listen, before you encountered Jesus, right? Uh, There was stuff you were doing that was really fun, and you thought it was really fun. There was a life you were living that there was a comfortability to it, and you thought it was comfortable. Why? Because you hadn't seen Jesus and who he was in light of who you were, and so it was easy to see that. Some of the tension in our early, and it continues into later, Jesus-following life, is that tension we find uh, when, when we encounter this, is there's, there's Jesus encountering parts of our life that we still want to backslide into. He says, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And this drives a wedge in the people who think they can be good with God, but despising or rejecting Jesus. You can't reject Jesus and still be in good standing with God. Remember, Jesus is talking to a bunch of his Jewish friends who loved God and were wrestling with this guy named Jesus. Thousands of years later, it's not much different. When some around us are uncomfortable with Jesus' claims of exclusivity, right? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when that gets uncomfortable, there's people who create a belief that you can get to God in all kinds of ways. A growing opinion in our world says if Jesus didn't come, then there would be no judgment, so it's easier just to pretend like he didn't come. But Jesus is in the room with these disciples saying, I did come, I'm actually here, right? And I did the things that you can't explain. So if they don't know Jesus, it isn't because they didn't hear or experience Jesus, it's just that they rejected him when he showed up. John 15, 24 says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. The word that is written in their, I love this, in their law. Get that? The word that's written in their law, the ones rejecting it must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let this be a warning to us. Jesus is talking about a people who held their scripture knowledge while living separated from the God who breathed those words into being and breathed life into those of us reading them. Wasn't that they weren't informed with the Bible. It's that they weren't connected to the vine. Get it? It's not that they didn't grow up in Bible studies and Sunday schools and small groups. It's that they retained all the information but never grew close to the Father. They read the Word but rejected the Word Himself. Jesus is using the Scripture they had all known and as a warning and a reminder, we can read and memorize the Word of God and still hate or not recognize God when He's right in front of us. That that should put a little awareness to how we perceive life and the people around us and what God's doing and discerning the Spirit and being connected to the vine so that when that life and Spirit flow through us, the fruit that's produced we know comes from the Father. Here's the last one. Preparation for troubles ahead is to keep your eyes on Jesus. 
And that may sound like kindergarten Sunday school stuff, but I don't know how long you've been following Jesus. I could still use a reminder because I can get distracted pretty easy. And there's a song I remember from the church I grew up in, and, uh, and I remember the lady behind us singing with about as much vibrato as you could get and probably a half a key off, right? Right? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. Why? Because then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John chapter 15, 26, Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Got it? The Holy Spirit's going to show up and, and is going to testify uh, that Jesus is who he says he was. And he's going to, like, really, God, I don't, you know, have you ever had the, like, doubts, like, I'm wrestling, I don't really know, and the Holy Spirit's there to say, no, let's remember who Jesus is and what he's done. But then he also says in verse 27, and you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth from the Father, and he will point us back to Jesus. You, your story and your experiences, your testimony and your life, you will be able to keep your eyes on Jesus because you've seen him work in your life and in the lives of those around you. If we had a microphone and we put it up front and we were to go and just have a testimony time where we got to get up and each one of you came and shared uh, these moments and if you couldn't come up with something, the Spirit is there to help you to share about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life and into the lives around you and how you've seen him transform not just your life but the world that you used to live in and the life that you came out of. And if we did that, we could be here till next Sunday. Because there's enough people in this room that have these stories and have this spirit that would well that stuff out and we'd be reminded. Chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. I think one of the reasons... Let's not even pretend like this is because it's me and I'm smart. As we read this, Jesus is telling us one of the reasons why we can backslide, disconnect, create a wall, stand on a fence where it's half in the world, half out of the world, half in the kingdom, half trying to still build our own thing. One of the reasons why there's disconnect, one of the reasons why our branch uh, can kind of separate from the vine from time to time, one of the reasons is because when, when some of this hatred starts billowing up. Now, in our culture, it's not hatred like someone's coming to your door and pulling you out and trying to persecute you or your family, uh, holding your kids hostage, the things that are happening around the world. Some of it for us is there's going to be uncomfortability in relationships, there's people that we enjoy hanging out with and we know that they keep dragging us back. There's, there's enmity. enmity. There's a separation. There's a hostility. There's a divide between us and the world. Jesus says we need to know that because without knowing that, we can live in both, assuming that everything's okay. And he says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And so he says to this group of people who found their life uh, uh, meaning the uh, social aspect, the fullness of who they were in these synagogues and these temples, this community space, much like Moraine Valley Church, in these places. He says, listen, because of me, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, hold up, 
Whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Don't forget, that's where the Apostle Paul was when we first meet him in the book of Acts. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father and they've not known me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So we know the issue. The issue is they don't know the Lord. And those of us who do can live life in such an us versus them mentality because we used to be there, but now we're in Christ. That those of us who have the title of ambassadors, who have the fullness of Him on display in where we are and where we go, the bride of Christ can often be the ones that are so separated from the world, complaining about the world, moving away from the world. And then we're surprised when it keeps getting worse. Don't fall away. When you choose to follow Jesus, your world will change and the world around you will fall apart. But don't you fall apart and don't you fall away. Keep your eyes on Jesus. At the age of 20, I was given a book that transformed my heart, my mind, my life. Uh, The book was put together by the Christian I don't know, singing, rap, I don't know what you call them, DC Talk. And a Christian uh, non-for-profit group called Voice of the Martyrs whose sole purpose is to keep telling the stories of those who have died for uh, what Jesus' warning was going to happen. The book was called Jesus Freaks. It was the story of dozens of Christian martyrs. In the opening pages of the book, they define what a martyr is. They define it this way. From the original Greek word, it means witness. One who chooses to suffer death rather than to deny Jesus Christ and his work. One who bears testimony to the truth of what he has seen or heard or knows as in witness in a court of justice. One who sacrifices something very important to further the kingdom of God. One who endures severe or constant suffering for their Christian witness. And then my favorite, last but not least, a Jesus freak. There was a page in the book that asked this question, is Jesus worth it? Let me read you how they go on to explain. This question is a simple one. Is following Jesus worth it? They say Jesus told us that it would always be costly to follow him. He told his disciples out of Mark 10, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. They go on and say this, our Christian heritage includes an unbroken chain of those who have paid the price to be Jesus freaks from the book of Acts until today. Following Jesus could cost you your popularity, it could cost you your job, it could cost you your standing in society and in community. Your family and friends may turn their backs on you. You could be squeezed out of opportunities, sent continually back to the back of the line, so to speak, because of your faith. Following Jesus could mean You'd have to give up everything, including the clothes on your back. And it's cost many their lives. Jesus did not pull a bait and switch. He didn't promise a prosperous life of health, wealth, and comfort. Jesus was living honestly as to what we signed up for when we followed Jesus. In Mark 8, he says, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. Remember, Jesus didn't die of old age. 
to pick up our cross and to follow him. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will in fact save it. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, let this be a warning. In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice the word he uses is ashamed. Meaning we could, right, tomorrow, someone could say, hey, how was your weekend? We could say, it was good. Oh, what'd you do yesterday? Ah, just, I don't know. Work around the house. How often when people have asked how you're doing, do you share the goodness of God? Even though hours before that, you were maybe in tears thanking God for how good he's been. How many of us have had God answer a long-standing prayer request and don't share it to anybody? Why? Because we're a little ashamed. It can, it can rub us a little wrong. We don't know how they're going to take it. We don't know what someone's going to do with it. So it's easier just to pull that back and hold on to it and just kind of just be there. Jesus gives a warning. Hebrews reminds us of a more complete picture of historic Jesus followers' lives. After giving so many stories of lives lived by faith, the writer of Hebrews adds in verse 32, And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, uh, sorry, Jeph- Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weak, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. But that isn't the full story because there were others. Writer of Hebrews continues, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again into a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Revelation chapter 6, John gives the vision of people who were hated by the world and killed by the world, crying out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you remain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? Because if I got killed for following Jesus, I want to know when Jesus is showing up. And a right white robe was given to each of them, and they were told that they were to rest for a little while longer. I want us to be reminded that we live in the time frame of a little while longer. How long, O Lord? At least is what I can tell you right now. A little while longer. Until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, who were to be killed even as they had been, was completed also. Throughout the rest of Revelation, John is explicit in in the description of the world being swept away by Satan's power and schemes and deceit. He shows the horror of rampant power, pride, and violence. But that's not the only story going on. In Revelation, there's another side of the vision, one of God's perfect judgment, his faithfulness to uphold his truth, his promise, and his grace. Jesus called faithful, true, and the word of God, comes riding in, this time not like on Palm Sunday on a donkey into the city, but on a white horse into the world proclaiming ultimate victory. 
in the next few scenes, we get to see the world that refused Jesus' grace and choose its own power being demolished by Jesus' victory. He then gives us this scene of hope and promise and faithfulness that when he shows up to those who were hated by the world, that after the world they knew who hated them had been judged, defeated, and destroyed, his promises are true and his faithfulness is good. Chapter 21, verse 2 says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You ever been to a wedding when the door's open in the back? Who knows if there's a prettier girl with more symmetrical face whose figure looks like what everyone wishes theirs looked like? Nobody cares. Because when the door's open, the bride is the most beautiful person in that room. So you get this? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he, God himself, will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He promised that we're going to go through suffering. But he also promises that he will never leave us and that he'll be with us till the very ends of the ages. Remember that this isn't about troubles from human suffering. It's about suffering that's a result of belonging to Jesus. Not just that we mentally, intellectually agree with the biblical principles, but that it's transformed who we are, and because of how we live, there's a hatred we face. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and he will establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Will you stand? Father, there are many of us in this room. And not to say we don't struggle at times, but we are convinced that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That the only possibility we have at the Father is through you. Amen, church? But through that way, Lord, help us understand that we will go through suffering. But God, would you build in in us the endurance, the patience, the long-suffering to know that the destination is worth the difficulty. That what we read in Revelation, that's that's what we're moving towards. We've got a promise. You've given it to us. It's good. It's true. And we may have to suffer for a little while that's where we're going. Lord, would you challenge those of us in the room who oftentimes can claim you with our lips, but maybe look at our lives and realize we don't know if the world hates us. God, would we 
would we take an interior look as we sing this next song and pray out these lyrics as we sing them? Father, would we take an interior look at what needs to be moved around so that we can take more of us out of this world and make sure that more of us is in Christ? Father, would you give us a love for the world that hates us? Would you remind us that our calling is into the world that you've redeemed us out of? That the issue that they've got is that they just don't know you. And Father, would you use our lives in some way to help them see you through us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.